It's a pleasure to feel the quality of settling and even deepening perhaps in this room as we come through the second day of retreat. And I know most commonly on the second day of retreat that there's also some achiness, you know, and sometimes even more sleepiness than the first day a bit. It's as if we stop and get still and then the things that are unfinished in our life start to show themselves in body and mind. Um, But at the same time, there's a sense of presence that grows with it all. So tonight I'd like to talk about two aspects of the foundations of mindfulness, the second foundation of mindfulness and its nature of feelings and the difficulties that arise as we practice our meditation and yoga. But I'd like to begin again with that phrase, the reminder to you, O nobly born, O you who are the daughters and the sons of the awakened ones, remember your true nature. Remember who you really are. So here we are, we come together as practitioners and as teachers in many cases. And we find ourselves in this human dilemma of being born into a human body And we take our seat as the Buddha did and as all the great yogis of India in the asana, on our seat, which is also the asana, called asana, in the seated posture, halfway between heaven and earth in this human incarnation and invite the possibility of awakening. Now, how do we find awakening? or liberation as we sit or walk or do our postures. First of all, it is, as Mark said last night, somewhat mysterious. And what's mysterious is incarnating at all. If you look in the mirror, you will notice that you look older. I'm sure you've noticed that. But the peculiar thing that most people also comment on is that they don't necessarily feel older, that their bodies looks older, but they don't feel older. Do you know why that is? Because your body exists in time, the elements do, and so they age. But that's not who you are. You have the body, you rent it, if you will, you inhabit it, but it's not your true or full identity. And something in this knows this immediately when we look in the mirror. Oh. Look at that, it's aging, isn't it? I mean, and it's such a weird thing to really look at your body. Um, how did you get in there? You know, little little patches of fur in certain parts. My fur is losing itself, you know, quite rapidly these days. Um, a hole at one end into which we stuff dead plants and animals and grind them up with these bones that hang down, right? And put water, the water element, glug, 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 and push them through the tubes and then, you know, push them out the other end. And then we ambulate on this, in this particular incarnation by falling one direction and catching ourselves, and then we fall the other direction and catch ourselves. It's a really weird way to bipedal get around. It is. You know, how did you get into the, and we have these wiggly things at the end, right, that we can kind of move about. How did you get in there? 
And do you, th- who are you? You know, do you think this is your nature? So we start, if we are to take this seat of awakening, like all the great yogis and Buddhas, and look at the nature of the life that we have been born into. And one of the things that's true is that the teachings of Buddhism, and in fact the Indian philosophies, in many cases what I say of Buddhism, is is really true of the great yogic traditions, both Hindu and Buddhist, is that they embrace the paradox of our life, of form and emptiness, or of spirit and body. In some simple way, what we need to do in embracing this paradox in our practice is to remember our Buddha nature and our social security number. (laughs) And both of those levels and dimensions have to be honored. We have to remember where we put our shoes and what time the bell rings. But if you only remember that, you're lost. On the other hand, if you just remember that it's spirit and you drive down on the left-hand side of the road instead of the right-hand side, you're going to go back to the realm of spirit very quickly because you're not in harmony with form. So in seeking wisdom and understanding, we actually have to look at the nature of incarnation on this earth itself. And if we look honestly, it is, um, how shall we say, not completely a pretty picture. This from Joseph Campbell. The first step to the knowledge of wonder and mystery of life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly realm as well as its glory. The realization that this is just how it is, and although we can work to end injustice, in the end, these truths are the way that this planet works. And those who think they know how the universe should have been had they created it, without pain, without sorrow, without time, without death, are unfit for illumination. So if you really want to awaken and serve this world, what you will have to teach is how to live in it, and no one can do so who has not themselves learned how to live in the joyful sorrow and the sorrowful joy of knowledge of life as it is. That's pretty strong medicine, actually. And if we read in the texts the description from the Buddha that Joseph Campbell in some way parallels is called the eight worldly winds, that life is made up of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. Anybody not have that? Please raise your hand when I meet this person who, does, who gets praise and no blame or gain and no loss. It's not the way that life itself and incarnation into form operates. Again, from the Anguttara Nikaya, it seems that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. And so we take this seat in halfway between heaven and earth and look, stop running around and stop moving ourselves and look with the eyes of wisdom and an open heart at our human life. 
What matters then is not so much the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. The capacity that we have to see with the eyes of wisdom the very dance of life itself. Now your students will come to you as they come to practice their asana and their hatha yoga, but most of them, as we said in the beginning, also come with a deep spiritual longing. And they'll come with their cultural conditioning and their ambitions and trying to do it right and their addictions and grief and their physical problems and their fears for the world and their confusion. And they'll come with a profound spiritual question. How do I live? How do I take this and and transform the life that I'm living in? So they want this from you. And you're part of your work, if you will, and the beauty of your work and your role as a teacher is to invite them to find wisdom and compassion in the very situation of their own life where they find themselves, to awaken their own Buddha nature. So a story for you. A young man was a military officer um, who had a really bad temper and angry a lot. And so his, um, his superior officer um, instructed him to go and take an eight-week mindfulness seminar training, which is now offered in some places in the army, kind of like mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, to deal with all that. Um, and I'm very glad that the army's doing it. I just wish it would go up the chain of command a little bit, but that's <laughs> a whole other conversation, right? So he did, and after five or six weeks of training in mindfulness in his classes, he was on his way home, and he stopped in the grocery store um, at night, and he was in a hurry, got all his groceries, and got in line. It was crowded. There was a long line, and the woman in front of him had only one item and a baby, and she wasn't in the express line. And he was one of those people where you had to be in the right line. You know, why, didn't, why wasn't she standing in the right line? Why was she in front of him? And he started to get irritated because things had to be right for him. You know, and then it got worse. She got up to the counter and to the checkout clerk, and they started cooing about the baby. You know how that happens, right? Ooh, yeah. And then she handed the baby to the clerk. I mean, he went ballistic. Come on, there's this long line. This is a grocery store. It's not a preschool, you know, the whole thing, and so forth. But because he'd been practicing mindfulness, he could feel the pain in his body and the tightness that came with his anger that he'd learned to pay attention to over these weeks. And as he felt it all build up here and go again, he noticed it mindfully, and he could soften and relax a bit. Oh, this is what I do, contraction. And by being mindful of it, it released some. And then he looked up, he noticed that it was a cute kid. (laughs) So he got up to the clerk, you know, with his groceries, and he said, that was a cute little boy you were holding. She said, oh, do you like him? She said, that's my baby. You see, my husband was in the military, um, but he was killed last year. So um, now I have to work, and my mom takes care of the baby, and she just tries to bring him in once a day so I can see him. There's so much in this simple story of what it means to be mindful within one's own body, to see the reactivity that comes and the way we suffer from it, the possibility of seeing it and not reacting, not 
not following it. And more than that, the release that mindfulness brings us from being caught in the suffering of the world so that we might see with the eyes of forgiveness and tenderness and compassion rather than that of blame. So the opportunity for you here in this retreat and in this training is not to learn about mindfulness, but to practice it, to feel it deepening as we go through these days, and you suffer some, which you will. I mean, that's fine, that's part of the game. And you enjoy it some, which you will also. And as you practice doing your yoga asanas and your meditation and your walking with mindfulness, there starts to come a kind of cellular knowledge, the body itself, the nervous system, because this is how we learn if you look at modern neuroscience, what we practice actually changes the brain and nervous system. If you practice violin, the parts of the brain that are associated with your fingers and the, you know, the keyboard, um, the fretboard, and the parts that are associated with reading music and so forth, they actually get thicker and bigger. The nervous system develops. As you practice, you are actually changing the vehicle of your body and nervous system. And you are becoming, you are learning a kind of cellular knowledge of what it means to be present in this amazing human incarnation, not caught, but present and free. And then, from this place of knowing, not only can you teach, but your being will be your teaching. So here, this is from a friend who is currently dying close to death from prostate cancer. He writes, my days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting, for every fearful fantasy, and every pain and ache I sat through, and every itch I didn't scratch, was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit which carries me now to my death. And having done hospice work, as some of you may have done, it's an amazing privilege to sit with people who have begun to train themselves in their life in some way and can bring the perspective of liberating mindfulness, wakefulness, compassion to that very process. So how do we find liberation, whether it's in the supermarket or our love relationships or politics, you know, or on our cushion or in our yoga practice? Again, the Buddha's instructions, the foundations of mindfulness. There's a most wonderful way, my friends, for living beings to realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, and travel the path of liberation and compassion. And this is the establishment of mindfulness. The establishment of mindfulness in four ways. Mindfulness of the body in the body, the first foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the feelings in the feelings. Mindfulness of the mind in the mind. And mindfulness of the dharma, the laws that govern 
the world in the Dharma. To observe with clear understanding, mindful, abandoning, grasping, and resistance, one sees clearly body and body, feelings and feelings, mind and mind, Dharma in Dharma. And particularly for the second foundation of mindfulness, last night Mark talked about mindfulness of the body, how does a practitioner remain established in mindfulness of feelings? When the practitioner has a pleasant feeling, they are aware this is a pleasant feeling. When they have a painful feeling, they are aware this is a painful feeling. When they experience a feeling neither pleasant nor unpleasant, they are aware this is a neutral feeling. They experience the feelings in the feelings within the body, and they experience the feelings, pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant, within the mind. Now, my teacher, Ajahn Chah, said it's really simple. If you want to learn about liberation, there's a seat in the center of the world, and you are asked to take that asana, that seat, and open the doors and windows, and let whatever comes come and whatever goes go, and your only task is to keep your eyes open to see clearly, and to keep your heart open to touch what arises with kindness or compassion. And the whole Dharma will be revealed to you. And so here we are on our retreat, and whatever pra- whatever posture we take, it is really this process of being where we are, taking the seat in the center of our experience and bringing our attention to what is here and now, our mindfulness, witnessing, being aware of, resting in the space of knowing, and seeing this incarnation into which we were born. Now what's critical to notice in the teachings of liberation, very, very important, is the second foundation of mindfulness that I just read to you. Pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant. Because as you start to examine your experience, here we quiet down, quiet the mind, pay attention. What you'll notice is that it's always changing. Pleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, pleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, pleasant. Anybody notice that? That's what it does. It's woven out of that. And sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes it's more obvious, but it's how it works. It's just like praise and blame and praise and blame and beginning and ending. It is woven out of pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant, our life experience. Now, some people only want pleasant. Raise your hands. No, don't bother. (laughs) If that's what you want, you are on the wrong planet. It's just not how it works here not in this incarnation, and actually not in this realm at all. Because to come into form means there's birth and death, beginning and ending, night and day, hot and cold, and in form then there's pleasant and unpleasant. It is the nature of incarnation. And the great way of wisdom is to see pleasant and unpleasant arising and passing without grasping and resisting to see the world as it is, this is where we find freedom. It's not your efforts to be free, but it is the truth that you see and know that liberates you. 
Now, usually our habit is not that. Our habit is to react rather than respond. So when pleasant things arise, if we're not paying attention, what do we do? Cling to them, right? Oh, I like this. I want it to last. How much longer can I? Oh, that pear tastes so good. I'm just going to roll it on my tongue. Maybe I'll get another piece. I know I'll get fat, but I want that other piece because it tastes so good. And we try to string out the pleasure. We cling to it. And you cling and cling. And you know what happens after a while when you cling to things that inevitably change? Rope burn. (laughs) Right? You're holding on and it changes and you suffer. Now, what is our reaction when things are painful? We resist them. We want to avoid them. We push them away. Judgment, fear, aversion, anger. I don't want to experience this. You know? And Mark talked about it last night with the woman in his class at Kaiser who had 10 years of neck pain. And after 10 years, she began to pay attention and she said, oh, It's not as bad as I thought. Ten years of struggling and running. It's just pain. She paid attention to it. But we have such an aversion in our culture. We live in a culture that is frightened of pain and loss and death. We do. And so people are running all the time away from their own life. They can't even relax and be present. And we have the capacity to learn how to do that and embody it and teach them. Otherwise, you have what Mark Twain said, you know, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened, right? You have all these fantasies about how bad it's going to be instead of finding the direct experience, like my friend with prostate cancer who said, I learned to develop the muscle for bearing witness of joy and sorrow. So instead of clinging to pleasant and reacting and resisting pain, what do we do when things are neutral? We go to sleep. We go on automatic. We miss the sunset. We don't taste the pear or the cheddar cheese or see the eyes of the children that we live with or our lover or the ants crawling you know, on the path as we're sitting outside there under the trees. We miss life itself. And in some of the great temples where I trained, one would be given the practice of being aware of pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant for six months. All right, spend six months sitting and walking and meditating, practicing, and notice pleasant and unpleasant and neutral thoughts, pleasant and unpleasant and neutral sights or sounds or smells or tastes, body perceptions. And as you do, and you start to see it over and over, you learn to relax, you learn to trust you learn to trust the capacity to, to bear witness to the joy, 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows of the world. You come to rest in liberating attention. And we're doing this here. This is the training we're undertaking. Now, as you teach this in you will, both in sitting, but also in the yoga asanas. You know, the goal isn't to have a perfect asana. Okay, I'm ha- I have this perfect pose. There is no such thing as a perfect pose. We all know that, right? The goal is to bring attention and love and wisdom and understanding to this body and feelings and mind to this human life. The goal is to find freedom through our practice. 
So one fellow came on a retreat here some time ago, and he was in the middle of a, you know, marital difficulty and problems with his kids, and he was a kind of irritated guy anyway and agitated, and he was sitting back there, and he started to sit and try and get quiet, and it wasn't very easy for him because you come in with all the freight that you carry. You know that in your yoga classes. People come in and they carry all that stuff. And he tried to sit quietly, and he was already struggling and thinking, you know, I made a mistake in coming here. And then the woman who sat next to him had a kind of cold and a bad, raspy cough, and she started to cough more and more. And he hated it. He heard the cough, and his body would just contract, you know, and he began to hate her. <laughs> and he came to an interview, and he told us, as teachers, I'm out of here. I'm gonna, I mean, I'm sitting next to this person, and my, I can't sit anyway. My body aches, and my mind is going crazy, and I'm out of here. And the teacher who he came to see said, okay, before you leave, just close your eyes and tell me what it's like in your body. And as soon as he closed his eyes, he could feel how painful it was in there, his tension, his aversion, all the stuff he carried. And she said, why don't you hold this whole experience with some compassion? Kind of just trained him in that for a few moments. And then some tears ran down his cheeks. She said, you don't have to leave. You need compassion for yourself, for her, for your life. Anyway, so she sort of talked him into practicing some more, and he went back, and she said, pay attention, because it's painful, it's unpleasant, and look at pleasant and unpleasant and neutral, just notice what you do with it. So he'd sit, and he'd start to get quiet, pleasant, and then, (coughs) you know, and it was, you could hear, feel that, can't you? Imagine, you know, unpleasant, can you feel the unpleasantness of it? And he would feel the pain of it, the sound, and also how it touched him. He was frightened, oh, I'll get sick, all that stuff. And so he began to notice how his stomach would clench and his body would tighten. And and then she'd stop and he'd soften. So he began to learn to be with it. And then an interesting thing happened. He went down to the dining room to lunch and he got in line and he looked up and he noticed she was in line right in front of him. She wasn't coughing but he saw her and his stomach clenched and his body got tight. Just remembering her was enough, right? So he noticed that. His body became a mirror, unpleasant, softened. Then he came back up after lunch and he looked at the interview list and there was her name. And he noticed when he saw her name on the list, his stomach got tight and I hate her. All that stuff came up. And he began to realize that it wasn't just her, but he did this through over and over in his life because we do this. We have things that are pleasant and unpleasant and we get the habit of contracting. And he began to use his body and use the practice of noticing pleasant and unpleasant and neutral as a way to train himself for liberation. And in doing so, by the end of the retreat, he said, I could bow to this woman. She was difficult and she was a, a, a real teacher for me. What happens is that we learn the capacity to tolerate what we have run from. And don't think it's easy. I mean, you know this. You're all practitioners. You think, oh, I'm going to practice yoga and meditation and so forth, and everything is going to get better and easier. It doesn't. It sometimes gets harder because you face life in its bare reality. You face what Joseph Campbell said, the, the monstrous nature and the and the the glory of life and you learn your capacity to be present for it 
without so much fear. Go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, and ring your bells, and call out to the gods, but watch out, because the gods will come, and they will put you on their anvil, and fire up their forge, and beat you and beat you, until they turn brass into pure gold. Sorry, you started, it's too late. And so what does that mean? It means that we, instead of running away from the world, clinging to pleasant, resisting unpleasant, not wanting to see the world as it is, but being in those reactions, we've stopped taking our seat and turned ourselves toward the world itself, toward its, its beauty and its sufferings, willingly, so that we might awaken. Otherwise, we're lost. This from James Baldwin, he says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate, racism, and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so it's a political act as well as a dharmic act to actually turn our gaze to the suffering and the beauty of of life as it is. And you learn this, this from Annie Morrow Lindbergh after her child was kidnapped and then killed. She writes about pain. She says, go with the pain. Let it take you. Open your palms and your body to the pain. It comes in waves like a tide and you must be open as a vessel lying on the beach, letting it fill you up and then retreating, leaving you empty and clear. With a deep breath, it has to be as deep as the pain. One reaches a kind of inner freedom from pain, as though the pain were not yours, but the body's. The spirit lays the body on the altar. And so we learn to be with joy and sorrow, pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant. It doesn't mean you do it all at once. If you've got a lot of pain, it's completely fine to move. You know, some people kind of get this whole perfectionist notion, I'm going to sit through everything. Dalai Lama puts it this way, middle path. That's his expression for it, the middle path. And we have to learn to titrate, to, to balance. If there's a lot, somebody comes in, they say, I have a lot of pain, what should I do? Half the time I might say, move. You know, it's too much. Find what you can tolerate first. Work with a little bit of pain. Should I move or shouldn't I move? Yes is the answer. Sometime you got to sit with it. Sometime you have to face it so that you're not afraid because there'll be days when you're in the hospital or someone you love is dying when you have to be with pain and you need to know that capacity. But it doesn't mean you make that your devotion and your practice. You do it sometimes and sometimes you're not ready or it's overwhelming or it's not the right day for it and you soften and move and come back to it when you can. You understand this? You don't want to make trauma out of this. You want to make wisdom out of it. Now, some people, well, Philip talked this morning also about how you enter pain through the elements. You know, knee pain, shoulder pain. Is it hot? Is it burning? Is it throbbing? You know, is it the earth element of hard or soft or raspy? Is it the air element? Is it vibrating? Is it tight? But underneath all that, it's to hold what comes 
as if you were holding a child. The pain is like, the, like a crying child, and you can hold that. Oh, here's the pain, and here's pleasure. Some people have more trouble with pleasure than pain, you know. You'll have people come to you. They're so loyal to their pain. They are. They're loyal to their suffering that they can't allow themselves to tolerate pleasure. And that's an equally important. Joy is one of the factors of enlightenment. And until you can experience piti or priti in Sanskrit, joy, rapture, sukha, happiness, you won't be awakened. There are 25 kinds of joy in the Buddhist texts. Thrilling joy, cold, deep, cold joy, the joy that feels like insects crawling over your skin. Rapture isn't always pleasant, you know. Sometimes rapture knocks you around like shakti. It's one of those kind of energetic things. Throbbing joy, you know, luminous joy, floating joy, all these different kinds. And then 25 kinds of happiness. You know those guys were list makers, right? So there's just <laughs> list after list. So in working with pleasant and neutral and unpleasant, we need to be able to both notice what's present and, and allow ourselves to tolerate pleasure and joy. When it comes, invite it. Let it get bigger. Let it open. Don't be so afraid of it. Now, it's also really important, this is a very central teaching, to understand about samadhi. Because samadhi has a lot of words and uses in, in both Buddhist and Hindu and Hindu teachings. And the, the main thing that I want to say about samadhi is that there are two, kind, two fundamental classes of samadhi, and they really relate to stillness. There's a samadhi states which remove us from experience, like going in a cave, jhana samadhi, sahaj samadhi, nirvikalpa samadhi, you know, the kind of jhana states of infinite space and infinite consciousness and all these samadhi states that one can go into, and you can do it, and we train people in that during our long retreats here. Those are the transcendent states, and they purify, and they fill the body and mind with light, and dissolve the body into light, and dissolve the light into the void, and you can do all these kinds of trainings. But the point is, certainly within the Buddhist tradition, and also within parts of the Hindu tradition, that those are really the warm-up for coming back and inhabiting this incarnation with the same luminosity and peace and understanding that we found there. They're not the end of the end of the game. They're really the training place to remember who we are and come back and see the light in everything. Because the second kind of samadhi is called kanika samadhi. And kanika samadhi means moment-to-moment samadhi of life itself. When we taste an apple and are fully there with it, It is the samadhi of being mindful and present and becoming one with, that apple is becoming one with our body, with wisdom and compassion in that moment, fully living that moment, and taking a step in our walking meditation or a stretch in our asana. Kanika samadhi is the samadhi of the tea ceremony. If you've ever been to a Japanese tea ceremony, it's also the samadhi of Michael Jordan on the basketball court, you know, it's the, and the samadhi of making love. It's the giving yourself to experience, you know, and it's very much there in the Vedantic tradition, especially Advaita Vedanta. I studied with Nisargadat for a number of years and, you know, in Kashmir Shaivism. It is the, it is the samadhi of the imminence of the divine, not the divine someplace else, but this place here 
is the pure land when we know how to rest and be present for it. And this stillness in the midst of activity is what we are training in mindfulness. It is the liberation that it offers. And Suzuki Roshi, Zen master, puts it this way. He says, when you realize the truth that everything changes, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, when you realize the truth, the dance of life, that everything changes, and find your composure in it, there you find yourself in nirvana. Nirvana, liberation, here. If we focus on the transcendent alone, it becomes really idealistic. You know, I only want that. I only want those pleasant experiences, and I only want light, and I don't like the body, and I don't like the messiness of it, and I don't like the pain, and so forth. Not much liberation in that. If you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate, if you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are, you are probably a dog. I mean, we have all these kind of inflated spiritual fantasies. Oh, I'm going to become like this and that. It's not how, what liberation looks like. Liberation is an embracing of our humanity. And it's the joy of the Dalai Lama, you know, in the midst of both sorrows and beauty, or of Gosananda, my teacher, or Aung San Suu Kyi. When the Four Noble Truths say that incarnation has suffering as a part of it, It's actually a relief. It means you didn't do something wrong. It does. It means it's not your fault that you didn't do it wrong. It's just the way that things are. And with primary feelings, pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant, we start to experience really immediately how we cling to things and what it means to be liberated. Now, the primary feeling tone of pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant then gives rise to a series of secondary feelings and emotions. And I want to talk a little bit more about how those arise because they're so common in the early days of the retreats. And the most common list is the list of the five hindrances, which you can read about in my books and Joseph Goldstein and various other um, teachers who write about them. Um, And they're really the hindrances to clear seeing when we're caught in them. They're the hindrances to the heart of compassion. And if the mind is untrained, we're caught in each one as they come. And when we train ourselves, then it becomes possible to be with these powerful energies and have them become the vehicles of liberation. So what are some of these difficulties? Here we take our seat, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, or we're doing our yoga asanas, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant. It's the way the game is happening, and we pay attention to this. And then as we do, our habits start to come. All the commentary, you know the commentary I mean? There was that cartoon in the New Yorker that showed a car going across Nevada, this vast landscape, and a roadside billboard that read, your own tedious thoughts, next 200 miles, right? 
And that's kind of like meditation. You sit here or you do your asana, and your mind keeps kind of coming up with this stuff, doesn't it? The unfinished business, the things, the likes, the dislikes. So what do we do when this comes? Well, here are the five most common ones to come, not just as you sit, but for your students as they try to do the simplest of practices. First, there comes the wanting mind. Anybody notice that? Oh, if only I had a latte. You know, I could really meditate. If only I'd brought some more, some chocolate to the retreat. If only I had brought, you know, one of those little benches that you can sit on. It's a little cool in here. If only I'd brought my alpaca shawl, you know, that perfect, or my Himalayan shawl. Or if only I had a little more money in the bank, then I wouldn't have to worry so much when I sit and I could really get enlightened, you know. Or if only I had the right partner, this loving person who just, you know, was just, you know, fully loved me, and then I could come and meditate and my life would feel, you know the if-only mind? It taps you on the shoulder and it says, what's here and now isn't enough, and if you fantasize this, then you'll be happy. And it's always in the future, because even when you get it, what happens? You get it, and then the next thing comes and says, well, you know, half a million isn't enough, you really need a million, you know, or, or you, get, you get it because desire is endless. And it's interesting, you're sitting there and you want, you know, maybe at the end of the sitting your body's a little achy, it's time for lunch, and the desire comes, I want the bell to ring, right? Oh, I wish they would ring the bell, that sweet sound, right, at the end of the sitting. And then there you are sitting, wanting, restless, wanting the bell to ring, and all of a sudden you hear. And from wanting and tension, because it's actually tense to be wanting, all of a sudden, you are happy. You hear the bell ring. And there's this great sense of happiness. Now, why is that? I mean, I don't think the bell is making you happy. If you look, what makes you happy is the ending of wanting. Because the wanting itself has pain and suffering in it. Where I am isn't okay. This is unpleasant. I want something else. So what to do with this? I mean, here is Hafez. He says, the mind is ever a tourist wanting to touch and buy new things, then toss them into an already filled closet. You know how to, you don't need anything more. Not for genuine happiness, not for liberation, you don't. What you need is to find the space before and after all desire that is here and now. So what do you do? Desire comes, and instead of either reacting to it, I hate desire, I don't want to go away. I mean, that's kindergarten spirituality, the notion that you shouldn't have desire. There's healthy desires and unhealthy desires, but as William Blake says, those who enter the gates of heaven are not beings who have no passion, thank you, nor beings who have curbed their passion, in spite of what the Indian spirituality might say, but those who have cultivated an understanding of them. That's where your liberation will come. So desire comes, and what do you do? In this practice, as if to bow to it, you begin to name it. We're using the practice of mindfulness, and if it's helpful for inner states, you can name it. Oh, desire, wanting, wanting, 
desire, desire, and you feel what it's like. There's tension in the belly, desire on the tongue maybe because you're thinking of something to eat, or desire in the body somewhere. How does it feel? Then there's the emotion that comes with it and the little story that runs, you know, the advertisement. Get this, you know, you'll have the yacht and the beautiful partner. And, you know, I mean, the advertising thing is insane in your mind. It is. And so you go, oh, desire, desire or wanting, wanting. And you name it and let yourself feel it. And as you bow to it, you notice two things. First is what's present in the body and the emotions and the story, the whole complex of it. So you actually get to know desire rather than being frightened of it or lost in it. And then you notice what happens to it. And maybe it gets bigger and it tries to take you over. Okay, more desire, strong desire, desire. Guess what happens after a while? It changes because everything does. Oh, it arises, it passes. So you sit and you begin to trust the space of awareness, to know desire, because the world runs on desire, and you can know it. And you can also know the space of liberation that feels the wanting mind as it comes in the postures, in your walking, in your sitting, or eating. Does this make sense to you? You become the space of awareness itself. Then the opposite comes, aversion. Not only is there desire, but then there's stuff you don't want. Anger, judgment, fear, all the things that push away the unpleasant. Desire wants the pleasant, right? Unpleasant, the reaction, we don't want this. I got really angry in the monastery with my forest monastery because I had so, my father was quite violent and abusive and battering of my mother especially, but us too. And I got, somebody treated me badly in the monastery a little bit, and I got enraged. It wasn't about them, of course. It was all the stored stuff. So I went to Ajahn Chah, my teacher. I said, I'm really angry. He looked at me. He said, good. He said, go in your little hut. Close the one door and window. Put yourself in all your robes. It's the hot season, tin roof. Wrap yourself up. He said, if you're going to be angry, do it right. You know, and be angry. And all day, sit in there and watch the story and feel the sensations and get to know it so you're not afraid of it anymore. Anger, 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 hatred, hatred, hatred. You just notice. Or maybe it's judgment. Maybe your form is the judging mind that's so common. You know, and you judge yourself and you judge the person coming in late and you judge the person whose posture is kind of getting over onto your little place a little bit and, you know, you're judging the people who are too slow or taking too much food in the food line, you know, and then you dump all that judgment on yourself. What to do? You bow to it, you know, judging, judging. There's the judging mind. Thank you for your opinion. That's all you just see. Or you count the judgments. How many judgments? 50 in an hour. Good practice. Judging, judging. Here's another breath. There's another judgment. This from Julia Childs, her instruction. Just remember, if you're alone in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can just pick it up. Who's going to know? Right? (laughs) It's the same in meditation, right? So judgment comes. Thank you for your opinion. You count it. Fear comes. You name it. Fear, fear, fear. And you learn to sit with fear as part of the human experience. It's part of our life. And maybe it gets worse. Fear, fear. Maybe it gets better. Fear, fear. Oh, I did so good, you know. Or maybe it gets worse. Fear, fear. Oh, oh. Terror, terror. You know, territory, and you say, okay, show me your dance. Be the space. The Buddha said you can put a spoonful of salt in a cup of water and it's very salty. A spoonful in a lake 
and you can't taste it. Make your mind like the lake. Be the lake of awareness that lets anger, fear come, judging come, fear, fear, and you just notice it. Fear is the cheapest room in the house, says Hafiz. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. Right? So you just notice it. This is fear. And maybe after 50 times, you're not as afraid. You know that it's not who you fundamentally are. It's just a story. And you get this deep trust, as I have. People come in and she said, this woman can, she said, I've got so much rage and I'm so afraid. And, you know, it was the right time. I'd work with her for a while. Close your eyes. Let the whole thing happen. This huge nuclear explosion of fear and anger came. All right. The world burned up. Okay. Everything's dead. I said, okay. Let some time pass. She said, nothing will ever come back. Let, you know, a hundred years pass, a million years. We've got time. Five minutes. Two million years, ten million. All of a sudden, she shook her head. I said, what's that? She said, I don't want to know. I said, take a look. Little green light far over there in this dark, dark, you know, burned, you know, completely destroyed universe. There's this tiny little green light. What is it? Oh, it's a planet over there. There's a little green thing starting to grow again. When you sit, you learn the, 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 to trust the process of renewal itself. If you make space, something new will come. Wanting aversion. Sleepiness is another one. You all notice nodding and things. Every monastery, I've never been to an ashram or a monastery on earth where there weren't people doing it. It's part of our humanity. In one temple, it's called the poor man's nirvana. Right? <laughs> so instead of fighting it, you can open your eyes or sit up. But mostly it's just to know this is the sleepy energy. It's completely fine. And it comes for a time. Maybe you stand up if you're really sleepy. And then it goes and the next thing comes. It's part of being human. It's opposite. Restlessness comes. Can't stand it. I'm so restless or lonely. You know, you fall asleep and then you get restless again. That's our culture. And you've got it in your body. So what do you do when you get restless or bored or lonely? You know what we do when we're not mindful? Open the refrigerator. Right? Because you can't stand your loneliness or boredom. Turn on the television, call somebody, anything but to feel your boredom or your loneliness or your restlessness. So you know what you do here? You say, restless, restless, bored, bored. If you're going to be bored, do it right. Be really bored. Sit here and see what happens. An hour of boredom. How bored can you get? You know? <laughs> or restless. I can't stand it. My body's so restless. I have to move restless. I feel like I'm going to die of restlessness. Do you know what to do at that point? You say, okay, I will die of restlessness. Take me. I'll be the first person to die of restlessness on retreat this year at Spirit Rock. And the, the minute you surrender to it, what happens? It becomes easier because most of the difficulty is our resistance to the experience. We take it to be ourselves and we resist it. When you say, okay, take me, restless, restless, I'm going to die, it's so hard, dying, dying. Oh, okay, I died, now what? Okay, I wonder what's for lunch, right? Okay, desire, desire. I did that pretty good. Oh, pride, pride, you notice that? Okay, I'm doing very well. Okay, back to the breath. And you begin to sense that everything is workable. Overcome any bitterness, says the Sufis, because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who holds the sorrows of the world in her heart, you're each endowed with a certain measure of this cosmic pain. You are called upon to meet it in compassion 
and understanding instead of self-pity. So you sit here with your humanity, joy and sorrow, sleepiness, restlessness, wanting, aversion, and doubt that comes in. I can't do it. It's too hard. I'm too old. I should have done this when I was younger. I'm too young. I should go out and, you know, enjoy the world first. Then I'll come to do this meditation, you know. Um, this isn't the right path for me. I should be at a yoga retreat and not a mindfulness retreat. You know the doubts, all those things. And again, we're so loyal to our, our small self, to the body of fear. We actually believe this stuff to our wounds and our suffering. So what do you do? You say, oh, doubting mind. This is the doubt. Thank you for your opinion. You bow to it. And you say, yes, this too. The mind creates the abyss, says Nisargadot. The mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. You bow to it and you touch it with compassion and understanding and say, yes, this too, this is our human lot. A story for you. This from Richard Selzer, a surgeon at Yale. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clown-like. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed in the evening lamplight, gazing at her. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods, is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And all at once I know who he is. I understand and lower my gaze, for one is not bold in an encounter with the gods. And unaware of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth and eyes so close I can see how, his, how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. And I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals. And I hold my breath and let the wonder in. This human incarnation is filled with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And the world so much needs your wisdom, your students, your, your family, your own life. This great heart of a Buddha, this great awakening is within you. And it's possible, it's what we're training and practicing and learning. Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh says, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates. If everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. They showed the way for everyone to survive. So it's a, a noble thing that we do together and that you've given yourself to over your life, over years of your practice. 
And it's an important and extraordinary energy to be contributing back to the earth at this time where there's so much fear and confusion and prejudice and fear of the unpleasant, you know, I mean, they're trying to make us afraid in the, in the public sphere in this country right now. Um, there's actually a, a whipping up of terror and fear. There needs to be somebody who understands fear, who's not afraid to turn their gaze to both the difficulties and the possibility of freedom in this world to the play of this incarnation with a great heart of compassion. And that's you. I mean, that's what we're training to do. To stay present, to not be identified, to not be hooked, to learn to relax with pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant, to bow to each one, to see the energies of the hindrances and the pleasant things that Anna will talk about tomorrow night, all the states that will come joy, love, expansion, contraction, all the possible states. And to find that dignity that is our birthright of Aung San Suu Kyi and our house in Rangoon, of Nelson Mandela walking out of 27 years in Robben Island with so much presence and dignity that he transformed an entire country with his wisdom and his understanding, pleasant, unpleasant, There's a dignity and a freedom behind it all. I'm very grateful that we're here together and that we get to do this training over this year and more ahead. Um, And if it's difficult, great. I mean, that's part of it, it is. And if it's beautiful and nourishing, also great. They probably will come together. And whatever happens as you go through it is the place of practice and the place of liberation for you. And it's what you will carry with your good heart to all those whom you touch. Let's sit for a moment. like the story of the young woman and her partner after surgery, it is possible for us to touch this life with a great heart of compassion and freedom. It is possible, and it is a wondrous thing to learn and embody and share. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.